Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Kevin Kwok. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, Kevin, you are working on a course. Yeah. yeah. Please uh, talk more. Tell us more about that. Yeah, working on a, a course on growth models. Casey Winters, who I used to uh, work with at, at Greylock, where he was a, a kind of growth expert in residence. We've discussed uh, a lot. It's kind of around how to think about loops and network effects and, and all these things as they relate to kind of companies. And uh, it's on a with a program called Reforge, which was started by uh, Brian Balfour and Andrew Chen. And I think, you know, part of our thinking behind it was, uh, like all four of us had been discussing how people thought about product and growth and, and the overly focused on, on kind of funnels, uh, was a wrong approach to it. And we'd all been kind of talking about this pairwise and, and together. Uh, and then, you know, I think Brian and Andrew and, uh, and Casey all have a strong bias like you on, uh, kind of, how do we how do we share the knowledge with the community and, and kind of push push that forward with people who are really working with the actual data and seeing it? And so we thought it'd be a great one to do with, with the program. So what are loops? <laughs> Describe the difference between and funnels and loops. And- yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think the biggest difference between loops and, and funnels is that loops are compounding. And I think that, you know, most people, when they look at funnels, you kind of start from the top and you're like, is this, is it, is my top of funnel broken? And, and once you fix that, you kind of get to the next part of it and you're like, Hey, maybe I can improve conversion. And, and you keep going down that chain and that's super useful. But if you look at kind of the most successful companies, everything starts to decay over time if it's not getting better. And a lot of times that's because you kind of saturate the market or, you get all the, the easy customers and then you start getting to customers who care less about the kind of value of your product or, or all sorts of things start kind of breaking apart. And so loops is kind of this idea of you need something that it needs to be a closed system where it actually gets better over time and, and compounds. And how do you actually model out those systems, which, you know, a lot of our both analytics tools and, and kind of how we think about these things aren't really naturally built for because they're built for the thing kind of being a linear flow and, and not actually affecting affecting itself. Can you give an example of of loops and maybe you know a, a, yeah, a product? Or yeah, a, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so definitely can go through a bunch of examples. I think you know one of the most common ones that that people think about is uh, network effects, right? And and so network effects are kind of this thing that everybody knows they should love. And then you get into the details of how do you measure it? What, why really does it exist? How do you, how do you create them? And everything gets a lot fuzzier. And so I think that, you know, when people kind of think about the quantitative side of network effects and they look at it, they kind of view it as this kind of bonus free stuff that came along with it, right? They're like, I, I built my product. Here's what its normal usage looks like. And then there's this kicker I get of just network effects if I have them. And it's kind of a Boolean value where you're like, I either don't have it or I have it. And if I have it, I just have this unaccounted for great stuff that starts happening. And I think, you know, 
one of the things, one of the reasons that happens is because we don't think about these, we don't think about these systems as loops, right? We think about them as funnels. And what network effects are is really the fact that, you know, as you get more people on it, it actually affects the quality of experience for everyone else. And so these things aren't independent. And if you view them as independent systems, then there always is this kind of weird bonus growth that you're getting. But once you realize that those are actually kind of one loop that can be, that can be modeled out, you can start to unpack, you know, what is the formulas and relationships between each of them and then figure out how to most improve that, right? Or actually figure out what the gradient of network effects are and, and how to tell if, you know, one network effect is stronger or weaker or what really is the, the scope of that. And so I guess one common example, uh, you know, how these, how these loops affect your thinking, right? Is, uh, I think one distinction people have drawn historically is kind of between local network effects and global network effects. And, you know, most of the time that's geographical when people think about Uber, Lyft and launching, you know, when you should you launch in every city versus, versus focus your resources on specific cities. But this is also true in things like, you know, Pinterest, where it's not geographical, but it's about topics and, you know, how much, how much should you show people pins from every topic versus only, you know, tables they like or chairs or, or specific kind of verticals of topics. And I think that, you know, understanding those is about understanding what is the actual scope of the network effect, right? And is it, and where is it really playing out? Is it playing out across the entire user base? Is it playing out on, you know, people who actually only care about the same topics? Is it playing out on people who are, is it only people who are in the same city who affect each other? And once you kind of can model out those systems, then you can have real discussions with the team around how do you make those trade-offs, right? Of investing in putting more resources into doubling down in one city versus saying, hey, we should launch everything immediately. Where do you see the misconceptions of either network effects or loops? Where do you see those most manifest? Across the board, I think that, you know, one area we see it a lot is is in everyone drawing lessons from consumer companies over the last you know ten years because I think that you know if you look at traditional enterprise companies, the reality is that a lot of them didn't necessarily have that many loops, not because they weren't working on systems that could have them, but because you know there just weren't that many iterations in everything they did. Each contract was worth so much money there was only you know, a hundred companies that could be purchasers for their systems of the scale that they were building. Each process of that was selling to one person at a company that was making a decision worth, you know, a million dollars. And so you get into this, and so the thing where you don't get that many iterations to kind of figure out what is actually the loop and, and how to improve it over time. Because, you know, in a year, you may only have a sales cycle that happens once. But then you look at kind of a bunch of the consumer companies of the last 10 years, and these companies have are serving, you know, orders of magnitude more customers. They're having orders of magnitude more interactions with each user. And, and so all of this means that it's becoming less of a thing where, you know, you make 10 decisions and each one of those things has the biggest impact as much as you have all of these flows of kind of customers and actions and you can actually start to understand what is the relationship between all of those and how do you track those and how do you think about, you know, how to actually model those out and, and, and solve them. And so I think that consumer has kind of pushed a bunch of the frontier of that because 
you actually have enough of that of being able to track it in a closed system where you can see all of the results in a way that you can understand it. And then slowly that has kind of percolated out to all of these other areas and, you know, even enterprise has become so many areas of enterprise have become so much more consumer ish, right? Whether that's kind of SaaS or bottoms up adoption or whether that's kind of having it not be the CIO, but having, you know, a bunch of buyers all across the companies who, who actually use the products before they buy it and, and, and kind of have a bunch more the engagement and retention of these things actually matter a bunch more, right? Yeah. How do you think looking out maybe, uh, 20 years from now, what, how do you think we'll view you growing either consumer companies or enterprise companies massively? Like what will be different? Yeah. Look, I don't, I don't know. I, I think the hope is that like with all industries, the hope is that we get better at it collectively. Right. And, and that, you know, I think, I think the, the test for it that is interesting is, if you or me or anyone else here went back 20 years ago to a company, would we be much better at kind of helping these companies 20 years ago because of what we take for granted as being common knowledge now that, you know, back then had been yet to be kind of fully figured out and fleshed out and, and shared across across the community? And I think the answer is yes, right? I think that, you know, that doesn't mean that you necessarily would would succeed at building a company back 20 years ago, but you'd probably be way better off compared to somebody at the time just trying to figure out and, and, and still in an industry parsing through a lot of things we figured out. And then the same question is, you know, 20 years from now, will, will, you know, our children look at us and say, I can't believe you're so stupid to be kind of thinking about your companies that way. Or I can't believe that you ran companies, you know, that were that old fashioned. And, and I think a few areas that'd be interesting to me on that, you know, one of them is understanding this in, in loops. And I think that the trend probably looks positive in that if you look at the analytics that companies have used over the last decade or two decades, at their companies, it's actually improved significantly. And, you know, part of that is you go back 20 years, uh, it actually was significantly less trivial to say, how do I collect the data from my company and visualize it and give access to everyone for it? Whereas now we kind of take for granted that you could implement, you know, any number of, you know, whether it's segment or looker, any number of tools that would help you kind of pull together your data and, and analyze it. And then I think, you know, we've also kind of pushed forward on what are the kind of charts we look at, right? And I remember when when I first kind of started at, at Greylock, so many companies when they came to pitch on the consumer side would only show downloads, right? Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, even within a year or two, you started seeing them go down to engagement and retention. And then, you know, you know, now people are showing much more complex things, whether that's, you know, cohort charts or, or kind of power user charts or, or whatever kinds of, uh, of ways to better understand their companies. And so I think there's, there's that part, which is, you know, hopefully we'll see that keep pushing forward where we, where we start to have built in tools for understanding that kind of, that kind of, of stuff. And then on the other side, I think that corporate structure would be interesting to, to see too, right? I mean, I think that marketplaces and social networks are a relatively recent in their current incarnation are, a relatively recent type of business model that is, you know, that level of, of kind of lack of centralization. And, and so I think that it's always interesting, you know, what will the next generation of that look like either on becoming 
more of more of ecosystems or in becoming more hybridized between how they think of traditional management versus kind of investing. Right? Yeah. Nikhil uh, Krishnan on Twitter asked asked you to get into your, your thoughts on the future of you know org structure. Do you have a, a view either way or how do you how do you see it playing out? <laughs> Nikhil and I went to went to high school together. So so lots of those discussions. Yeah, I mean I think there's I think it's it's something that I think about a lot. I think there's a lot of directions that could go. Um, one example of an org structure that is interesting to me currently is is you know I think that there's a chance we look at Amazon years from now and and it actually is kind of more like an investment vehicle than it is a company. So you know you look at kind of how it's structured out and and you know they write these six-page memos for all funding decisions they do. Bezos kind of operates on a time scale where he's not really making decisions on things that are less than two or three years in importance. You know, they have teams kind of running with their own kind of budget and GMs and, and deciding how to allocate their resources. And, and you keep looking at all of these factors and, you know, the line between that and something like Berkshire Hathaway, right, starts to look blurrier and blurrier, except that, you know, it probably has more advantages in terms of the kind of synergies between the departments. And so, you know, I think one thought experiment is like, could you reach a point where Amazon could break itself up and still actually function as well? And, you know, if you could, then then how should we view that, right? Should we view that as more of the control provisions of a company or more of the control provisions of a of a investment vehicle? And I think across the board, I think that's something that's interesting because the structure that we view as corporations is a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, the structure of corporations has been around for a few hundred years, but then you even look at the structure of like LLCs and that's only been around for, for, you know, sub a few decades. And so there's lots of ways that that can kind of shift. And I think the, the interesting question of that is like, how do we actually decrease a bunch of the coordination and transactional costs so that we can see these new interesting interesting structures of it emerge that that are better and and, and more aligned because i think it's kind of a weird distinction that we have where we kind of view it as like people in your company and then everybody else and the reality is you know with marketplaces or social networks or open source projects we've started to blow that line where we say there's people in the company there's everyone else but then there's these people who are not quite in the company but actually you know, do mattered a lot to to the company, whether that is kind of hosts on Airbnb or whether that is right. developers who contribute to open source. And part of the question is you can't control them in the same way directly. You can't even motivate them necessarily in the same way. But how do we think about aligning their their incentives and, and what they care about with actually the company and the ecosystem and I think that, you know, all of those examples are kind of the early days of us figuring that out and, and right. we'll see where it goes. Right? And are, are crypto networks the answer? I mean, are you in the Chris Dixon's school of thought <laughs> that you can, you know, align all, all the incentives via, via tokens? I mean, I think that, that crypto networks could be the answer. I think that they won't be the only answer for sure. And if they are the answer, I think that the thing that they're most useful for is in pushing a bunch of our conversation about what are the parts of the structures we have today that we that might not be ideal? And so, you know, I think the 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 part 
I think there's a few things that that have you know made me most kind of long term bullish on on crypto networks, and I think you know one of them is kind of the stock market as we currently have it. And so I think if you look at the stock market today and you ask why it exists, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of people might might tell you that actually all of this trading activity shouldn't exist. Certainly it could be that there's a lot that is wasteful, but but I think that the biggest bull argument for it is that, you know, if you ran a company that was public or, or any company actually and wanted me to join and we were trying to negotiate on what the value of equity you were giving me was worth. And, you know, that's important so that we're both aligned on the long-term interest of the company. It'd be very difficult for you to do that in a world where the stock market didn't exist because, you know, you'd say, hey, I think it's worth $5 billion because, you know, my brother invested and said it was at a valuation of $5 billion. And also, like, trust me, I know how it's doing. It's worth $5 billion. And, I wouldn't be able to trust any of that, right? Because, you know, obviously your family has a conflict of interest. You have asymmetric information. You need kind of this third-party auditing service, hopefully a very distributed third-party auditing service that can say like, hey, not only are we saying this is the value of it, but it is heavily incented, you know, there's a heavy economic incentive for us to not fake this, right? And if someone tried to change the value of a company, it would be very expensive or they would have to be correct, right? And that's what the stock market basically does. And and so in that way, the stock market, you know, when we look at all the financial applications of crypto that have seemed much more natural fits than a lot of the ideas people have had in non-financial applications, I think it makes sense because, you know, finance is kind of the crypto before crypto was possible. And, you know, I think venture in some sense is that too, right? At the private markets is, is you could roughly think of as kind of this third party auditing validation service that gets paid a, you know, somewhere between 15 to 25% tax rate in return for kind of authenticating what we think of as the fair market value of these, of these companies. And so I think that, you know, that's one half. And then the other half is that I think a lot of the struggle we've had is like, how do you store capital, capital in terms of money, but capital in terms of the ability to do things. And so I think that, you know, personal capital is kind of the basis of, of, of most action, right? It's like what you or me decide we want to do, we can go do it. And then I think, you know, two of the main other types are social capital and financial capital. Financial capital, I think is you know, if you put aside the focus on money is, is mainly around how can we make it so that it is storable and it is fungible. And the storable and fungible are important because they it's what allows us to say, hey, actually, you know, you can find different ways to store your work, your actions, etc., into a form that you could actually then save up or go use however you wanted, right? And, and everyone would accept it. And, and we use money as that but, you know, stored forms of personal capital don't necessarily have to look like money. And so I think that crypto is is pushing along that as well, which is how can we kind of encode that and, and structure various forms of stored capital into our systems so that we can get that kind of social scalability of them that, that would be able to do it. Now, look, like, will the current ecosystem of it hit it? I think that's always an open question, right? I think the thing that certainly has already happened is that you have a larger and larger group of people who are just willing to rethink 
what are the the attributes of structures of corporations that they're allowed to play with. And 90% of that is probably completely wrong. But when the dust settles on it all, like if you get one or two major changes into how people think are kind of consensus structures we can have for it, then like that is is actually a huge impact compared to, you know, the amount of change we've seen in corporate structures over the last few hundred years. Yeah. If you could, you know, wave a wand and just say crypto or crypto networks will have this this influence on either organizations or how we store financial capital or social capital, what what would that wave of a wand be for you? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I think one of the areas that I've thought about, though I think it has its own dangers, is, and I don't think this will be anywhere close to the first things to come out of crypto, but one of the areas I've thought about is is how we think about social capital. Would it be better or worse if we actually encoded social capital more so than than we than we do today? And if, uh, just to zoom out, can you first define... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, capital, yeah. Financial capital, as you, as you define it? Yeah. So I think that social capital is kind of, you know, in opposition to personal capital or financial capital is, is kind of your ability to have someone else do something, right? And so unlike financial capital, it is less fungible. And so what that means, it's, sorry, it's less fungible and it's done via staking dynamics. And so what that means as an example is, you know, if I asked you for an introduction to, you know, your, your co-founders at, uh, at Village, my amount of, you know, our, the amount we know each other is not transferable to how well I know them, right? It's just entirely different relationships. But that said, it, it and, and so that's why it's non-fungible or at least semi-fungible. That said, the way that, you know, when any of us introduce two of our mutual friends together, you know, I think if you were precise about what's actually happening there and, and you tried to quantify it, what's happening is that I stake some amount of my social capital with you and you're actually staking your social capital with your co-founder, right? And, you know, actually that varies. You could be staking anywhere from zero to all of it. You know, zero is kind of that message that's like, hey, this person Kevin asked to meet, like, I don't know him, your call, you decide whether you want to or not. Versus 100, you're like, you know, like, you have to absolutely meet this person. And then, you know, if if we meet, if the meeting goes well, as with staking, they kind of give you that back with with a bonus, right? And if it goes badly, they kind of slash it, right? They, they slash 50% and they're like, hey, look, I'll take another meeting that you forced me to take, but like, this wasn't, I didn't enjoy this. Like, you really shouldn't introduce me like this, right? And I, and you know, part of what makes social capital effective is that it's not quantitative, right? Like it, it, you, nobody can ever directly observe what it is explicitly, which makes it have a lot more flexibility. But part of that also comes with a lack of scalability. And so, you know, these trade-offs, we, we see them across the board. You know, I, I remember you know, an example of this that a friend of mine, Eugene Wei, you know, used to talk about a lot is kind of, if you look at Snapchat, Snapchat has played around with kind of how they think about this social capital because it used to be that they would tell you who your, you know, top three friends were. Right? And when they told you who your top three friends were, then you would look at it and you'd say, you know, they they made it very explicit. And once it was explicit, 
actually a lot of the benefits of social capital kind of eroded because what ended up happening is people would realize they weren't in the top three friends of people that they otherwise thought they were. Because before, everybody was telling everybody that they were in their top three friends. And now there was a very explicit way for people to realize that they actually weren't. And this actually, in some sense, hurts the network effect of the system, right? Because it makes a lot of people realize that they aren't actually... It makes them realize that they that they weren't as close as they thought, or at least on a relative basis, they weren't. When actually, you know, it's a probably a positive, beneficial thing of of our social capital systems that you can have multiple people think they're all, you know, super the closest the closest friends to each other. You know, Snapchat has has since shifted that to a system that kind of has streaks, right? And and streaks don't have this problem because they're by definition pairwise, right? Like you can have streaks with everybody and yes you need to log on to snapchat every day even more so the more streaks you have with more people to maintain them and so i think that you know there's a lot that that we already have social capital kind of encoded into a bunch of our platforms but we don't talk about it as explicitly as we talk about financial capital and and so you know it is one of these things that naturally has staking dynamics and semi-fungibility which actually make it it a thing that rhymes closer to things we should think about when we're thinking about what are systems that are uh, innately only possible with with crypto or, 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 or with protocols. So I think like there's a bunch of learnings from that that I hope get adopted. And then I think the other one is, you know, which is a much harder one for us to do is, is how do we actually reach the point where we can start thinking about things that are only possible with crypto, right? And and I think that, you know, many of the ideas we currently see are things that already exist in the current world trying to be adapted to to crypto. But for the most part, you know, things that already exist in the world are already possible, right? And and the question is, what are things that are not possible without, you know, the specific attributes of crypto? And and I think we're still early in, in kind of people figuring that out. And your hunch is that it might be some of this encoding of social capital? Or... No, I mean, I, I think that I actually think it probably will less so be, you know, something that looks directly social as much as how do we how do we find things that have the same kind of attributes of how do we find things where the things are really implicitly kind of have the attributes that we talk about more explicitly and see more often in crypto, right? Whether that is kind of how you actually think about staking dynamics or, or whether that is how you actually have systems where you need some kind of public lighthouse or commons, but that can't be created, uh, that can't be created without having economic alignment of incentives with some, you know, larger body of, of people. And how do we actually think about systems that are native to that, which, you know, I think that the, the two systems I kind of look at as being most native to that currently are kind of the financial markets and then and then kind of how social capital works. And, you know, that makes sense because kind of financial capital and social capital are the two that we most kind of talk about in that in that view. But I think that there's a that that it's it's probably less so re-encoding those exact same ones as figuring out what are the lessons to draw from that, right? You mentioned earlier about third party auditing systems for to help us yeah. join companies. Do you what do you think about prediction markets as they're stock markets for all all types of decisions. Yeah. Do you think that, do you see a world in which that is, should we get dinner tonight? I don't know. Let's ask like 
whether people will, you know, we'd enjoy it or, or that sort of thing. Yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah. So, and I think that projection markets are, are, are super interesting. And I think they're interesting for a few reasons. I think it's still unclear which exactly will be the ones that take off. That said, I think the building primitives to, to lower the friction of creating them, I think is net hugely beneficial so that we can just have people actually experiment with that. But I think there's two reasons why, uh, I personally think that, that they're, they're super interesting. I think one reason is that on a smaller scale, and a lot of this wouldn't even require prediction, you know, prediction markets of the kind that, you know, are kind of are being built by, by Augur or others. But there's one part which is like tracking things over time is probably something that we don't do enough before and after decisions that in general would probably be a very interesting data set to, to just see. And so even if you thought that, even if you found out that there was not predictiveness on, on these things, I think it's, it's a just super useful habit and practice to that, you know, I wish was way less friction in general, because, you know, I think it, you always kind of lie to yourself afterwards of what you actually think anything of how you actually felt about things beforehand. And so in general, I think that there's a lot of value to be had in, in kind of having the accountability of, of actually making predictions and then being able to, to go back and see. And I've always thought that like that in general is a thing that would be a great just general cultural norm among groups of people if they all just actually made predictions, right? And then and went back and actually looked at what those were and, and, and kind of refactored their, their decision-making off of that. That, of course, doesn't actually require prediction markets. Prediction markets are more about how do you scale that up and, and actually make it possible for, for that to be, you know, way more kind of verifiable and, and massively distributed. But I think that, that you know, prediction markets are, are super interesting because markets and everything is, is probably a trend that for, for a bunch of areas, we actually are probably liquidity constrained and, and we don't realize. And so I think that, you know, I don't expect them to immediately take off because I think that it's actually very difficult to identify areas and industries that specifically have the characteristics where having prediction markets would, would unlock them. I actually don't think that is necessarily every market. I think that, that that will actually take work of team, of very focused specific teams to figure out what are the areas where having something that allows you to bring increased liquidity or, or have kind of third parties is kind of ascertain what is actually the, the, or it's important that you have third parties ascertain what is, what is actually the price or, or state of it is, is that is something that is actually pretty difficult to, to find uh, for the same reason that, you know, you know, everyone trying to start Uber for X companies kind of missed that the dynamics of those industries weren't the same as Uber, right? Or, or, or ride sharing where you kind of had this dynamic where it was liquidity constrained because there was actually uh, specialized knowledge required to be a driver. And, and it was really, you know, Google Maps and, and ways that, that unlocked, unlocked the liquidity on that. And the question is, you know, what are those areas that will, that will, where prediction markets will actually unlock the liquidity on it? I think is a challenge, but, but I think that 
you know, the, the idea that we have hit the limits of all the things that should have markets on them is, is, is probably crazy, right? Because we have so few today. In a world of markets and everything, like where would you worry in terms of market failures? Or like some yeah. people think that we need to solve market failures, which is more markets. <laughs> and others think, no, actually, there's something inherently. Yeah, yeah. The, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the more you, you create markets, or more specifically, I guess, or more generally, I guess I'd say the more you decentralize things, it introduces a different class of risk factors. Uh, and I think, you know, we are currently seeing this, you know, not just in our financial markets, we're also seeing this in, in our social platforms, right? And, and I think that there's a, a, a push people often make, which is, why don't we just go backwards, right, to, to how it was before and, are these unsustainable risks that are existential that, that we actually should, should not touch at all. And, you know, I, I think that there's valid critiques there, but I think that it's, it's easy to say that. And I think that there's two main challenges with it. I think that the first challenge is that, you know, the risk factors and benefits of these more decentralized systems aren't obviously worse than the risk factors and benefits of the systems before them. They're, they're just different. And we're certainly living through the transition period where, you know, we haven't actually fully figured out how they operate. But in general, you know, I think the net decentralization of them, we should probably view as net beneficial because we've already seen tons, we've already seen tons of benefits from them and we haven't yet even gotten that particularly good at it. That said, I do think that there are a bunch of risk factors that are novel. And so I think the biggest risk factors that are novel is that the attack profile of them is endogenous, not exogenous. And so what I mean by that is, you know, when you have a fully centralized system, you don't need to be worried about yourself. You just need to be worried about the things that are not you. And when you have systems that are more decentralized, it's like the horror movie where the phone call is coming from inside the house, right? And, and everything about that is just totally different, you know, because you can't just say stop, like I don't, like you can't do this. It's also, you know, the most common way people try to solve problems that are exogenous is they try to become stronger. They try to centralize power and become stronger, but that's exactly the wrong thing to do in, in kind of these decentralized, decentralized systems because you can't make yourself stronger without making the enemies inside the system stronger as well. And so instead, what you have to do is figure out how to build systems that are asymmetric, where it's costlier for enemies to be using them than it is for you to be using them. And so I think there's a whole class of issues that we're facing, you know, in both our financial markets, social networks, etc., that are of that kind. And then I think there's a second class that people are also identifying, which is the fact that, you know, when you look at a bunch of these networks, they have volatility. And... Actually, in general, I'd say that they, that they have, that it's unclear whether they have net more volatility than centralized systems. It's just that centralized systems only exhibit volatility in catastrophic collapse versus in kind of just general volatility. But it is true that, you know, these systems have a bunch more volatility. And this ranges from the smallest, you know, scale of, you know, things like Uber have dynamic pricing, right? That, that make the price go up or down depending on demand 
two things that are, are kind of much more serious, right? And, and so I think that when you look at this volatility, it's something that we, we need to get used to and, and figure out which areas of it we need to mitigate, which areas will just normalize over time. But, you know, when you look at the stock market today, even after the 08 crisis, you know, people who wanted to reform the system Nobody was talking about getting rid of the stock market because we understand that this volatility is is a price we accept in return for a bunch of the benefits that came from that increased liquidity. And so I think, you know, the the question that we have to get through is as we introduce all of these new kind of networks and marketplaces and, and, and other platforms, this volatility we feel will feel very uncomfortable because we're not used to it. But if we got used to it, would we actually look back and say we want to get rid of these? And if we actually weighed the true benefits and, and cons of these, would we net say that we want to get rid of them? Or actually, is it more that we're just the generation that is going through a bunch of the transition stages where we haven't figured it out yet, but you know we get to decide how to figure it out, right? Yeah. Earlier, you talked about the potential to encode more social capital. Can you say more about manifestations of what that could could look like? Yeah, is yeah. Is that reputation systems? Is that something else? Is that... I mean, I think there's a lot of directions it it could look like. And and look, I think that there's a lot that there's a lot of risk in it as well, but I'll give some examples like well, well actually I think a a, a adjacent the good example of this to me is is kind of how I and, and maybe some others view Twitter. Right. You know, I think there's a lot of debate on, on Twitter and, and what it should look like in, in good and bad stuff. But I think that for myself and, and certainly for a lot of people, you know, who, who I know in, in, in the Valley, Twitter has, has been, has opened a lot of, of doors of just meeting people who you become very good friends with, having conversations and, and discussions that you otherwise wouldn't have had access to and being able to kind of, be a fly on the wall of, of others having those exact same conversations, right? And I think that part of why that works is because Twitter is a, a, a protocol where, you know, it kind of pushed forward what the top of funnel of that looked like significantly, where for the most part, almost anyone can have read access, actually write access too, but certainly read access to almost any discussion happening there, right? And and in some sense, you know, the metaphor I like to use is like we were we didn't know what the what exactly was this before, but certainly now Twitter is almost like the on-chain of tech, right? Where there's tons of conversation happening off it. There's conversation happening on it. It's not actually necessarily true that the conversation on it is more is better or more true than the conversations that are happening off-chain, but it's common knowledge and it's accessible to anyone. And I think that there's a lot of advantages to having that, right? To having things that are actually permissionless and common knowledge and anybody can kind of join in on them because what it does is it makes it permissionless so that even though you may not know what the upside is, somebody else, you know, thousands of other people can go figure out what the upside of those conversations is, whether that's to them or to you. And so, you know, you obviously have to worry about are there downsides to kind of saying things that are on chain in that way. 
But the upsides are kind of long tail and, and huge because it means that anybody can kind of self-select into to those and they can start participating. And then you have a you know, permissionless way to, to actually figure out who are people who you didn't know at all, weren't actually people who, you know, went to the same schools as you, have resumes that are, you know, super impressive, work at companies that everyone knows, but you talk with them and you realize that actually you resonate a lot, right? And, mm. and, and it makes it possible to kind of have that in a way that before people were far less common, it was far less common because you know, one, people are like, look, I don't, it's too high friction for me to say I want to go, you know, invite a bunch of strangers to dinner at my house. And it also is something where I don't feel that comfortable kind of sharing a bunch of my conversations I'm having publicly. But then you have a system like this that that is kind of public and, and, and on-chain and, and it allows a bunch more experimentation of that. And so, I think that, you know, obviously Twitter doesn't require anything crypto to be that. But I think that there's a interesting question to us, which is if Twitter is one example of how much that frontier can be pushed out, can we push that frontier out way more in ways that, that you know, also don't suffer some of the downsides of Twitter, which is, you know, it's it's not particularly civil resistant, that allow us to actually figure out these systems that enable way more people who aren't currently served or, or, or able to participate in, in the current systems to actually kind of, you know, permissionlessly enter them. Right. right? So it was an interesting idea we brought up a few times, this idea of, of sort of sharing in public. Uh, one example, uh, I was talking to someone, uh, Nick Charles at Notation Capital, who was talking about, you know, his fund is now participating in mining and participating yeah. in networks. And he just had this big post and he came on the podcast and he was saying, Mining 1.0 was very, you know, private and hush hush. Uh, whereas mining 2.0, you know, he's interested because there's a lot of things that haven't been figured out yet in thinking in public about it. And I was curious about it because, you know, it's still a zero sum game, but he thought that the, the gains that it was more worth it to share with others, even though they might take some of his resources because of what he might learn from them and what he might gain from being seen as someone who thought of it first. It's just interesting when the, incentives lead people to to share things that were previously you know better considered secrets yeah for uh, absolutely and and well i think mining is is a super interesting case study to watch play out because you know mining is one of the kind of sub five areas of crypto that kind of have already established uh, significant value creation and has historically been super centralized, right? And and I think part of a lot of people's belief that all areas of crypto would get super decentralized has been this kind of waking up to, hey, look, we've decentralized some areas. What are actually the natural economies of scales or network effects or, or things that would cause centralization or decentralization at, at any area we're looking at and you know mining has has obviously had a bunch of centralization on you know capital and and uh economies of scale of of kind of producing them and, and a bunch of other areas i think his point though is is a super good one that i think we think of a lot for silicon valley because you know compared to many other industries silicon valley is probably one of the most open and and most sharing and and part of that question is why is that the case how could you bring that to other industries and is silicon valley actually at 80% of that or at 20% of that 
And, you know, I personally think that Silicon Valley is way ahead of other industries, but probably at 20%. And the first question is, you know, why is it the case? And I think Silicon Valley is this way, not because, you know, we're better humans or, or, or anything than other, other industries, but because we have specific dynamics of the structure of our industry that align people towards it. And specifically, you know, some of those attributes are things like, hey, we actually have a system set up that has high churn rate in terms of people moving around. So you actually will not work at one company your entire life, but actually, you know, work with many different groups of people. You also have this system where you can't quite tell you know, the intern you have is going to be someone who starts a company you want to invest in, joins a VC firm and wants to invest in your company. You want to work together on, on some project together and start a company. And there's a bunch more fluidity and movement. And so, you know, those dimensions, as, as well as the equity alignment structure we've created, which a lot of industries don't have, have made it so that it is in people's economic interest to kind of share more of their knowledge and kind of build out these networks. Now, of course, you know, part of the other thing that has, has caused this is that if, if you look at, at Silicon Valley, there also is this, you know, I think versus Hollywood, for example, there is this way in which equity alignment actually causes you to orient around the long term mm-hmm. with each other. And most industries don't have this, right? And and, and this goes back to what I say about the stock market uh, and, and venture, which is that, you know, without equity alignment, it's as a structure, it's hard to actually align people on a long enough time horizon. And the second bigger thing on it is that, you know, the value of information decays. And so the more you think that the information you have today will be valuable in 10 years, the less incentive you have to share it with others versus kind of hoard it for yourself and and kind of milk it for a decade. But if you think that the information you have is going to decay, you know, next month, then you might as well share it with others and get credit for sharing it rather than hold on to it, to this depreciating asset. And so historically, you know, the value of information in in Silicon Valley has kind of decayed at a much faster rate than than it has in other industries. And that has made it way more economically dominant in Silicon Valley for people to share a bunch of their knowledge and to form these groups that that kind of share this knowledge and, and all work together. And look, like, I think the... Interesting questions are, 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 one, how do you actually push that forward more? And also, you know, how do you at every scope of whether, you know, you and your good friends or, or the Valley as a whole improve that and increase that? And how do you actually, you know, align yourselves with people who are kind of building that commons, right? Versus, versus taking advantage of it right. and, and kind of burning the commons. It's interesting this concept of a uh, you know concept of like a personal board of directors. Yeah. It's sort of like a symbolic concept today, but it'd be interesting if that was actually actualized in some way. Yeah. Like, would you you know would you give Mark Andreessen like point five percent of all future <laughs> earnings <laughs> if he was like affiliated? Yeah, yeah I might even do, do it just you, for the brand credit. <laughs> do, do you have a personal board of directors? That not formal. I mean, I have mentors. Yeah, and I you know I'll systematize like I'll chat with them every three months yeah, or every yeah. six months, but I. They don't have real skin in the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's funny because I was uh, discussing this with someone about, uh, do you know Pioneer? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, 
so I said something about about Pioneer because you know, and I, I think they've changed the yeah. changed the the structure of the model, but 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 I was looking at the original structure of the model, and and you know, like one of the thought experiments I, I was thinking about it with some friends is well. If you could define exactly what the scope of engagement was, right? If you were like, you could pick anyone in the world and they'd meet with you weekly and, and care about how you do, what percentage would you give of your income? Would you be willing to give of your income? Right? Would you be willing to give 8% of your income to someone if you could choose exactly who they were and you'd meet and they would meet with you weekly, which, you know, obviously is not, not what that, what Pioneer's model was. But, but I think that thought, thought experiment is interesting because I think, you know, the answer is pretty definitively yes right. that I would, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's interesting because, you know, I think that that almost universally doesn't occur. Actually, maybe it occurs, but it's just called like, your family in, in some sense yeah. but but it's not a crazy model now of course the question is how could you guarantee that they would actually engage with you but but even before you get to those systems you know i uh, i think that on on non-financial capital ones were probably way under indexed and so you know for example i think that you could roughly think of a curve where the x-axis is how close you are to somebody and the y axis is like throughput of information or like resonance or working together. And I think that, you know, my belief that probably is not shared by most people is that the head of that curve is, is like order of magnitude more power law than, than people think. And so this could be a completely incorrect belief, but, but one of my two core beliefs is, is that the amount of, of throughput of, of kind of resonance and, and information and all of that among people who are at the highest levels of, of trust with you is, is probably could be way higher than people actually have it. And that both means that there's many more gradients of trust than, than people realize. Because when people, you know, I guess maybe similar to the Snapchat thing, when people say like, Hey, this is the person I trust the most. I tend to believe that that probably isn't true because unless you are comfortable saying like, I give them full access to my bank account and my email and every, you know, document I have written, they probably aren't act like they probably aren't as high level right. of trust as they could be. Not that there's a wide swath of people you should go give that information to. Right. And then similarly, you know, I think part of the question is like, how do you like Twitter push out the frontier of throughput with those people, right? And and so, you know, I think personal board of directors is a super interesting idea. Uh, not because I think a board of directors is necessarily the most platonic structure, but because I think that in general, most people have, I think, too much in the box of what is the structure that they could have with these kinds of relationships. And so, you know, these analogs that we have from companies where, you know, in personal relationships, we feel like it's kind of sketchy to try to optimize them. It feel, a lot of people feel this thing where it's like, it feels like uh, it's manipulative in some way. Whereas in companies, everybody is trying to figure out how, or at least in Silicon Valley, everyone is trying to figure out how to better structure all of these relationships and meetings to be, you know, maximally useful to, to both sides. And I understand the queasiness. I've always been, I've always disagreed with it because I think that the natural state, I guess this goes back to loops, like the natural state of all things, right? If they aren't compounding is entropy. And, and so for the same reason that when you and your, you know, college roommates, 
don't live in the same city anymore, the amount you talk to them and see them naturally tends to fall, you know, to, to way less frequently than when you were living together. You know, you are subject to the whims of kind of proximity and recency if you aren't actually trying to figure out how to naturally make compounding kind of systems. And so I think that, you know, to, to, to a point you've, you've definitely talked a, a lot about uh, on, on kind of career loops, I think that uh, when you think about that in personal relationships, it's how do you actually decrease the friction of those? How do you structure those? How do you actually increase the throughput of those to unconstrain and compound them so that they actually are, are you know, better for, for everyone and, and taking the analogs from how we have structured some things at companies is a, is a useful way to start on that, right? I want, you know, people sort of look at a, I'm going to take it to the most extreme place, which is like, imagine a, like, a baby that was adopted, but then the parents, hmm. like, no longer cared for the baby or, or passed away. Yeah. And there's just, it's a, you know, in a foster home or something, or a prisoner that just got out of prison. And not only do people not care about it, but actually have a stigma towards it. Like, if they could, I mean, it sounds so ridiculous. Is if they could, like, ICO themselves or give other people, like, incentive, you know, incentives to, to help, help, is that a dystopian world? Some people would see that as, a, as like, the, you know, I guess it would call it neoliberalism or something. I don't know. Like, or is that a, oh man, you could ins- align incentives better. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, if, if I had some, if I knew that I have this vague sense of alignment with my college roommates who I haven't talked to in like 10 years, I, I'd be more excited to care about that. I don't, and not even out of financial gain, but just out of some sense of like duty. Almost. I don't know. It's, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, I think it's a, it's, it's a super interesting question, right? Uh, and, and even if you put aside like financial incentive right. or, or alignment, I think there's a question which is like, how do you, how do you increase the, the kind of just even resonance so that even without that, you, you get a similar effect. But I think it's a question that, you know, I get the, the hesitations people have with a lot of it because like all decentralized systems, if you start to structure these things out, there clearly are abuse vectors on it, right? And we just haven't actually built out social norms and legal norms and kind of encoded norms to even understand or handle a bunch of those cases. That said, I think that, you know, if you look at our current system from a kind of outsider lens, we have this system, right? But it only transfers genetically. Mm-hmm. And so we we do have this system where there is a, you know, everybody has groups of people that are, you know, bound to them financially, socially, you know, just personally uh, on a, on a whole set of dimensions and care a lot about each other's success. Right. And, you know, we don't view this as, as, as inherently bad. Right. There's clearly ways in which this is bad because, uh, this is, well, not bad, but this is, you know, net harmful can be net harmful yeah. right but we don't talk of, about genetic failures the way we talk yeah, about like we, but we don't failure. we don't view the system as inherently right. bad we view those examples of nepotism or corruption or you know the shame that people only help their family as as being things that like we we want to fix in the systems but we don't view that as inherently bad that we have these kinds of bonds but it's an interesting question because, you know, like one way that you could view a lot of investment vehicles of, of high net worth individuals is like instead of passing on the 
financial capital and knowledge capital and social capital only to their kids. They go pass it off to others in return for some take rate, right? And is that a like is that a net beneficial system to have? Like actually probably yes, right? To to say like, you know, not that you shouldn't pass anything to your children, but you know, actually you are really uh, uh unconstrained on a bunch of resources and we could reallocate those to people who actually would have good use of them but don't have access to them. Now, do we have a system that is ideal for that? Like no, probably not because you know, even if you look at venture or or finance or any of these areas they really are are optimizing on a very specific narrow set of things that they are looking for that actually have a time horizon that's relatively short and so are there a lot of examples of people who wouldn't ever get funding or network or or anything like that from these existing models we have that are worthy that that we should want to get them actually probably a ton of people and so then the question is can we figure out what are those systems that actually give a reason whether that is financial or whether that's just personal satisfaction or you know working together in the future or whatever that get people to actually better kind of redistribute these kinds of resources that would that would unconstrain people in, into ways that would make them a lot happier and be net beneficial for society a lot more. I think that, you know, we're 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 the likelihood that we are super early on that and still constrained on that is is very high. Right. Let's zoom out a little bit. Talk talk about let's get back to loops. Talk about how you see loops in the context of careers and how you see that perhaps uh, what are the implications of that that are maybe different from how people view careers today? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I am an authority <laughs> to be speaking on anything related to, to careers. But I think there's a, there's a lot of ways in which I, I view loops as, as, as careers. I think that one of them is, like all loops, I think that the, the two main things to think about and is kind of what is constraining them and what are they compounding on? And so, you know, I think that there's always all sorts of directions that people can go in their careers that they often struggle with, whether thinking about, you know, how much should I be optimizing for kind of building this very narrow, strong skill set versus network versus kind of being a generalist versus all of these other dimensions. And I think the kind of one level lower framework to be thinking about it on is is kind of you know, what is actually the thing that you're constrained on, right? Or what are the things that compound that, that compound? And, and, you know, when you apply that lens to it, which are the areas that actually would then kind of help you unblock the loop that, the, the sequence of loops that is kind of how you think about, uh, you know, your career and, and all of the different resources of knowledge or network or, or skills or whatever that you're trying to build. I think that the, other part right is like how do you build out these ecosystems of loops that you have and are part of that will actually help you compound naturally and and so i think that you know one thing that the valley has been naturally good at is is kind of embedding a bunch of these loops all across itself where you know people whether that consciously or not kind of find their tribe of people and then they learn from them they work with them they go work with them somewhere else they invest in them they kind of have people to go talk to and 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 pick their brain on 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 various things they're thinking through and challenges they're having and 
and kind of having these ecosystems is, is super crucial. And so I think that, you know, part of it is like, how do you actually find that tribe of people? How do you build out all of these kind of codependent loops so that you, you do actually compound together and, and, you know, figure out the set of people that for the next five decades you'll be working with in all of these different ways. And I think that when you look at how to build that out, that actually versus other industries where it is much more around kind of having a very clear deterministic path that is set and, you know, a very clear set of things that is the optimal path of it and bosses to be spending the time kind of meeting their needs. In the Valley, it's much more consumer than enterprise, right? In terms of there is just a much more fluid ecosystem of people all actually working together and, and trying to and, and trying to figure out how to find their own people they resonate with and then structure out all of these different ways of working together. Let's try to make it a bit more concrete. Um, you, uh, maybe if we could either talk about that last idea of like in terms of finding people, is it as simple as starting a company and getting really smart people to join or going to a really great college so that you're you know, with all these people and, and having similar experiences to them? Or how should people be thinking about you know, surrounding themselves with the with the people that most resonate with them? Yeah. And the algorithms yeah. for finding those people. And yeah, them. yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to go to go find the people you resonate with. I, I think that, you know, one thing that that I've certainly found for myself, at least, is that, you know, there's historically you would only find the people you resonated with at your company, in your college, at places where you spent a bunch of time. I think, you know, one of the good things about about the Valley has been that there's way more kind of, of ways to go find people, right? Whether that is uh, at your company or other companies or whether that is in kind of talking with people on Twitter or that is this going to events or this podcast, right? And, and so I think that there's a lot more ways to find people, which is, which is good. And, and in general, I think that like you are orders of magnitude better than I am about actually, actually engaging in public, right? Uh, like I have probably failed at, I've probably, uh, failed at, at, writing blog posts at any rate other than like once once every decade your twitter game has been strong uh, <laughs> yeah but but i think that it's you know we probably have still underrated the the returns on just a personal level of engaging in public and letting other people figure out that you are their kind of person right and that you care about the same kind of things that they care about and then, you know, one level down from that, I think that when you find the people you resonate with, you know, it's about how do you increase that throughput? And so, you know, I think some experiments that, that, that various groups of, of my friends and I have, have done that, that I think have been super, super valuable to me is, uh, you know, one example is some set of friends where if we ever are, uh, talking to each other via via email or text or Twitter or whatever, we actually just default opt into messaging multiple people with all those other people on the message, right? And, you know, it's kind of similar to, I think, how how Stripe has, has kind of done their email system, right. right, historically of having things be default public and shared and having this 
this, and you know, how Amazon has done with kind of their meetings of having a lot of meetings among managers have kind of default read access of the employees where they could kind of sit in and see them where, you know, as long as you're not afraid of the downside of it, you just don't know what the upside is. And the upside tends to be a lot of benefits, like the person actually knows something that is useful to add to the conversation, or you just have this passively active channel of communication so that people know what's going on in each other's lives. And then when you do need to really talk about something, they have contacts or all of these other, all of these other benefits. And so I think that there's a lot of ways to increase that throughput once you figure out the people you resonate with, where, you know, the, the thing is like, how do you, how do you increase the resonance so that you have contest, context so that when you need to think through a challenge you're having, they already kind of know how you think the situation you're in. When you kind of are thinking about something, they can actually kind of easily frictionlessly chime in and, and kind of push your thinking and, and just, you know, increasing that, I think also has a, has a huge benefit. Give an example of both something that compounds in someone's career and something that is a constraint and either, or it could be something personal experience, something you think I've experienced or, or, yeah. or, or someone else perhaps, or just like a, an example. Of- yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think that the, Look, these examples can vary across a bunch of people, but some examples of it are, you know, for example, I think that constraints tend to be things where there's a specific thing that is adding friction or, or, or blocking, blocking you, right? And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of, you know, constraints exist even not in loops and, and there's a lot of traditional career paths that have each thing kind of being a one constraint after another, right? I think for a lot of people, the most common one is kind of feeling like they need to go to business school in order to advance in their, in, in a lot of industries, right? Where if you just don't have it, you can go do all of these other things. But then at the end of the day, people look at you and they're like, but do you, have you been to business school, right? And, and so I think that there's a lot of areas where people feel these things where they, you know, have something, one specific thing that is kind of blocking their ability to kind of keep going irrespective of everything else. Compounding, I think, is, happens all the time in other industries, but is, but is more focused by domain. But in tech, I think that there's a lot of areas you can compound in, right? I think that network is, is, for example, a great area because, you know, you, it kind of takes on a life of its own, right? Like you, when you, I remember when I first moved to, to the Valley and was, and was working at, at Greylock, you know, at some point they're like, you know, go, go talk to a bunch of companies, like go find a bunch of companies, talk to a bunch of companies. It's like, I don't know anybody. <laughs> there's no reason anyone should talk to me. Right. Like there's not really, like it feels, you know, I'm, I'm relatively antisocial. Like it feels <laughs> awkward trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to go do that. Right. And, and now I look at it and, and I think that, you know, I, I'm anything special on, on that regard, but you've, you've built up over the years, you've built up all these people who know you, like you, know how you think, what you care about, how, how you, what you can help them with, you know, like you go to each other's wedding, like it's just all of these things compound on themselves, right? And, and 
it's it helps push you in directions that you wouldn't have otherwise gone and, and figured out. And so I think that there's there's a, a bunch that is how do you kind of bootstrap or unconstrain yourself on things that don't currently exist. But then after some point, you start to find these flows of, you know, whether it's like the natural ways that I'm sure doing this podcast has pulled you into all sorts of different areas and rabbit holes that you kind of dive to a certain depth on with them. But then you have conversations with people that help kind of build your knowledge on it and and help you see all the different paths they go down and then keep just pulling at that, right? And and similarly, I think that, you know, that was my experience as well, right, with, with, with Greylock is, you know, when I went in, there was so few areas that I'd say I had any relevant knowledge on or, or particular networking or, or any of these. And, you know after you start actually building out knowledge and, and talking with more people and helping companies kind of think through their challenges, you start to understand a, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of these domains. And then, you know, one level up from that, I think the part that, that, that I certainly care about a lot, whether it proves to be useful or not, is, is certainly an only question is, is kind of how do we all figure out how to generalize the things we are learning so that they're applicable across domains and so that other people can find them and, and use them too, right? And I think that, you know, just like software is kind of an abstraction machine of saying, how do we do things, but then package them up and, and figure out their parameters so that we can kind of let others do them without the cost that, that, that it took us to do it. And also, you know, how to be applicable across a wider area of things. I think the same is true for all of the things that, that we do, right? Which is how do we go figure out what are actually the underlying principles that are kind of the structures that dictate how companies, what makes companies successful or not successful or why certain industries play out the way they do or how to think about the, the different challenges that people have at their companies or things like that. We're talking offline and I was sharing my sort of evolving thesis that I, I believe there are a few different things that can be both constraints or, or compounding, depending on whether you're strong or weak at them. One, one is network we talked about. Another is brand or even what I was it like legibility, the, yeah. the ability to be branded, like is your skill easily communicable and, and, and translatable and then financial capital and then also uh, knowledge and skills. And I posited that it's much easier to get the others if you have knowledge and skills. You can get a network brand and financial capital. Uh, they sort of fall into place much quicker or easier. But uh, it's the same is not true the other way around. Where do you agree or disagree? or How do you view that? I can't tell whether I think it is always true. I think it is often true. And the reason why is because I think it is less understood and less deterministic of what compounds in more network-based things. And it doesn't actually mean to me that it's less valuable. But I think that the the thing is that knowledge and skills are a very specific amount of kind of value creation, right? And, and network-based ones are much more around understanding what was actually the constraint of this larger loop of people and understanding how the thing you're doing kind of unblocks it. And I think that when you find the areas where that is true, I actually think it creates, you know, a, a massive amount of value. But the question is, you know, which are the areas where, and, and that's specific to each kind of area of, of, of where it is actually blocked. And then also, do people also correctly value that, right? And, and do, do, do people underweight the value of it? 
And so I think that it, it certainly is true that value and skills tend to be a very useful way to bootstrap up that. That said, I think that at scale, probably, you know, the ability to scale up you compounding in value in, in skills it tends to, to be less scalable, right? Than figuring out how to actually uh, unblock a, a, a bunch of people from to, to have everyone kind of uh, contributing to it. And, you know, an example of it, actually, originally part of the reason I, I was interested in, in doing this course with Reforge is because I think that, you know, it's one thing and a useful thing to kind of have a bunch of classes on growth or retention that are helping people learn valuable skills. But I actually think that long-term, the thing that probably compounds the most, you know, similar to, to what you guys are doing at Village is, is how do you use that to bootstrap it? But how do you also then pull together a bunch of people into a community together who are all kind of thinking about the same problems, care about getting better and improving, know that they all are, are kind of care about the same thing? And, and how do you actually kind of unconstrain the throughput of that network, right? And and having them kind of not just learn the thing, but learn it together and then and then be able to talk and, and talk through the things with each other and, and, and build out those ties. And I think that the same is true across all of these domains, right? Is like it always is trying to figure out what is the thing that is most constraining these industries. It always is useful to, you know, have more people with more knowledge and, and more skills but sometimes that's not necessarily the thing that's most constraining some area right and and so part of it is figuring out which it which it is and for people who are listening what what would you is a common constraint to help them understand better like they might be asking what's constraining me yeah how do people understand what's what's constraining them and how to unblock that yeah yeah i'll give an example of a place where I feel like a lot of people are, are don't realize they are constrained and are constrained. I have a lot of friends who are, you know, PMs or, or working growth or, or, or other areas. And they often, you know, struggle to find other PMs who have the same challenges that they have. And so they, they tend to find that it's, you know, they're like, their jobs are too different. The companies are too different. It's not that useful to go talk to uh, these other people about the challenges they're facing. But in general, I probably tend to disagree with that. And I think that they really are just constrained on having too sparse a number of people they've talked to in too high dimensional a field. And so I think it is true that product, because, you know, it's a relatively recent field that is ill-defined, is has a lot of different attributes upon which it differs. And so being PMs that, you know, you and one random other PM are less likely to have that similar experiences. But most PMs know 10 other PMs, you know, five who they went to college with, five they work with. And then they're surprised that there's not that much transferability or generalizability in those conversations. But they're probably talking to way too few people. You know, if they were talking to 100 PMs, would they actually feel this way or would they actually realize that they start to feel what is the shape of companies that is similar to theirs, even if not competitors? Kind of what are those conversations that are useful? And in general, I think that 
this theme is probably consistent across a bunch of dimensions, right? Like even people talking about joining companies, you know, one of the things that has always kind of, you know, baffled or bemused me is that I talk to a lot of people who are thinking about joining companies and they've spent less time diligencing the company than I spend diligencing companies that we invest in in venture, right? And, and that's always been kind of funny to me because a VC firm does care a lot about its investment. But for an individual, right. you know, you're committing two, five plus years of your life yeah. with no other companies you're working with to a company. And that seems like a way more important decision with way less diligence done. And so I think that, you know, like when I look at examples like that, I think that that, that does push me on this question, which is, is everybody talking, is everybody talking to an order of magnitude less people than they should be and spending an order of magnitude less time thinking about, you know, their, their companies than they, than they should be because we've kind of normalized that there are just these things that are, are kind of, these constraints are normal, right? And, and there's no, there's no solution to them. When in reality, you know, uh, as with all kind of loops, I think one thing that's very hard to tell with loops is at each place in it to know you are constrained, you need to have an accurate benchmark. And it's hard to have a benchmark often, but you need to figure out what is a proxy you can use for that. And, you know, you know, in this example, I think one proxy is, is, is this, is this case, right? Which is, Hey, is it, if, if this is, you know, if you look at a VC firm and a VC firm is, doing way more diligence on on something that actually relatively matters less to them than than this matters to you then that's actually a reasonable benchmark of hey could like what of that could you do and the diligence might not be the same but you know if you looked at your interviewing process as venture like what of those things could you actually do what of those things should you do that you are not doing and and I think that there, that that actually with that as a benchmark, I think we'd probably realize that there is a, a a lot more that 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 could and should be done than than most people do. And an example of one, right, is you know I think that that again with this delta we have between how companies act and how individuals act for companies or VC firms, you know we would say that they should be way more active about sourcing and who are all the companies they're talking to and. What are the things that are causing others to kind of to to find them and, and be inbound? What is the outbound they're doing, and what is the things that make people in their network kind of understand what they're looking for, and what are the companies that they want would want to invest in and introducing them to them? And then I think we look at you know people running job searches, and they are way more passive about it, right? And and you know I, I think that. Is a question of like even at the simplest form, if you thought about those three channels and optimizing them, what would it look like? And you know, one simple thing of it is like if you just made a list, an explicit Google sheet of all of the companies you are interested in or talking to, and you shared that with your friends, would they actually have useful input or introductions or knowledge about those companies? And the answer for most people here is probably yes. Now, you know, as with all things, every amount of friction that is added there probably decreases exponentially the amount that your friends are going to do because while they love you, like the 
they are not thinking day and night about, you know, the fact that you haven't told them, but you are thinking about leaving your company and joining something or what you're looking for, all of this. And, you know, at the same time, if you actually made it as frictionless as possible for them and removed all those constraints of them knowing the list of companies, them knowing what you're interested in, all of the, you know, them not having to feel like they need to double opt in, intro you or all of these things, would it increase how much they actually are? Do you run across all of these things that you'd be interested in? I think the answer is is, is pretty definitively yes, right? Mm-hmm. Zooming out a little bit, we are both young people who spent time in, in, in venture capital and venture capital is you know, traditionally like an older person industry. The LPs are older, VCs are older. How do you think about this concept of like, what is gravitas? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't particularly think I have gravitas. So I, don't, I don't know if I if I have the answer to to what is gravitas. Is it just aesthetics for older people? Like, <laughs> aesthetics, aesthetics for older people. <laughs> like older people aesthetic. Like, what is gravitas? Yeah, I I, I think I've, I've I've thought and discussed this question a, a bunch, and I think it's interesting because I think we don't know. I don't think there's consensus on on to your point on what it is to begin with. Like network effects, it's this kind of thing where everyone's like, it'd be great if I had Gravitas. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, you know, everyone's like, you should have, like, if you, you know, worked on Gravitas, then, then like, life would just be, like, better in all dimensions. Yeah. And you're like, but specifically, what actually is Gravitas? It's like, yeah, it's this kind of quality that I don't, like, I know it when I see it, but, uh, yeah. but like, but you don't have it. And so I think it is, you know, the first part is like, what is it? And I think that there's the traditional definition of Gravitas, and then maybe different new definitions of it. I think traditionally people have thought about gravitas in this kind of classic VP of sales, mm-hmm. like or or like super old school classic like, way. And and I think that you know a lot of them do have gravitas, but the question is, have we been too narrow in our definition of it? And I probably suspect yes. I think that there's two directions that I've thought about what gravitas could be, neither of which I necessarily am set on. One of which is gravitas is, and I would roughly define these as like the PE value version of this and, and the, and the, and the not PE value version of this. I think the not PE value version of this is gravitas as kind of reaching a level of self-confidence in the thing you are talking about where you not only understand it, but understand at least one level deeper of it than however deep you're going to have a conversation with others on. And I think that when you have that, there's a comfort level that people have that is a, is a, is intuitively apparent to people, if not explicit. And I think it really requires being one level deeper in knowledge of it because when you're not, you don't know when it's going to go off the rails, right? And, and so it's, it's kind of this ability to not only understand something, but understand why it is the way it is so that if somebody pushes you, you can actually on the fly reformulate for yourself what is, what is actually the, the cause of it. But I don't think that's the traditional definition. I think the traditional definition probably falls more in this sense of PE value, which, you know, PE values in companies Price earnings ratios are, are kind of this, you know, there's a technical definition, but the, but the general way I, I view them is you have this PE ratio, which is like, hey, what do you think this company is like? What is this substantive value of this thing? And then you say, hey, but actually, 
what's the multiple above that that we are valuing it at? And, you know, is this good to value it higher, you know, at 14x versus 5x versus 1x versus 0.5x? I think the answer to that is it's good if you have a good ROIC on that form of capital that it enables you to get cheap. Because a P value, a P ratio, is so that you can get cheap cost of capital in the financial markets, that's money, but in, you know, as I view P ratios in, in non-financial markets, that could be social capital, that could be knowledge, that could be whatever. But it gives you cheap cost of capital. And if that is your constrained resource, then it is hugely net beneficial. If it's not your constrained resource, then not only is it not beneficial, but at some point you're going to feel awkward when it converges because people realize that actually there wasn't there wasn't a justification for you having that PE ratio. And so I think that gravitas is a form of that PE ratio, right? Of people who, who whether it's because they're charismatic or her, they have depth in some domain or whatever reason, have the ability to be valued at some multiple of somebody with all of the exact same characteristics except for that. I think that, you know, insofar as you think that things that unconstrains you on is the constrained resource, then it can be super valuable, right? Which is which is why I think that the question that that is a super important question for a bunch of people is, well, how do you go figure out, you know, once you figure out what is your constrained resource, how do you go figure out what is that thing that increases your P ratio in it? And, you know, as an example, uh, obviously, I think it's very unclear right now how this is going to go. I think that historically, Elon Musk has had a very high PE ratio, right? Uh, and we've seen this in his ability to get, you know, massive amounts of capital at, at relatively cheap rates in the public markets. And that actually has been incredibly useful for him because he was working on industries, you know, all the companies he's, he's, he's working on are industries that are extremely high capex. And so SpaceX and Tesla do require large amounts of capital to even have a chance to succeed. And so very few people could probably even attempt to do what he is doing at Tesla or SpaceX without the ability to raise the amount of capital that he has been able to raise. Now, of course, that means that the very weak spot of his is the fact that if he stops having that P ratio and being able to raise capital effectively, then, you know, these are very economy of scale industries that, that require it. And, and so, you know, right now it, ma- it makes sense both that he, he has actively cultivated and built that PE ratio. It also makes sense that this is the place that is the most existential risk uh, to, to attacking Tesla because, you know, he actually does have an amazing ROIC on, on this capital. But the question is, what exactly is the runway he has, right, to, to, to keep having access to kind of all of this, all of this open, open capital to, to draw from? Yeah. How do you think it's going to play out? <laughs> if, I, if I knew how it was going to play out, I'd, <laughs> I'd be a far better, far better public market investor. I, don't, I mean, I, I have, I have no clue how, how, how it's going to play out. Well, did you just even forget the companies for a second? Elon's reputation, and maybe those things are <laughs> too related, but it feels like it's, you know, become more of this, like, you know, more closer to like real celebrity, like Kim Kardashian, like, like, yeah. like drama and, um, curious. Is he sort of like invincible <laughs> because of like what he, what has he achieved, what has he accomplished? But it's just sort of interesting to think about you know, when, when the tide turns on someone, how, how the cycles play out. 
Yeah, yeah. Public opinion. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a fascinating one to watch play out because I think that views on him are have become so polarized and then both sides also have such strong views on on kind of the the insanity of of the other sides of you know holding their view and and and, and like unethicalness of the other sides holding their view and i think you know just a step back at it it is a fascinating thing to just watch out and and understanding and understanding these kinds of systems because both sides are are kind of entirely rational in that his p ratio you know the success of tesla probably is actually directly a function of his P-E ratio. And so it is probably both simultaneously true that if you gave him a unlimited budget forever, he could make Tesla achieve all of the things that he wants it to achieve. And also that if you cut him off and he was unable to have cheap cost of capital, that Tesla has 0% chance of hitting its production targets or scaling up or any of that. And then the question is just somewhere between you know, zero months to unlimited months, where is actually that line of what it takes to actually kind of hit its minimum viable stable scope, right? Uh, and should we, should, should he be, will he and should he be given that cost of capital? And, you know, on one side, you have people who say, hey, he should just a priori be supported because he is working on things that are net positively useful and, are, are, are good for humanity. And so there's no price at which you shouldn't be rooting for him and supporting that. And on the other side, you have people who are, are, you know, at least implicitly saying, Hey, actually, there is real value to us having efficiency in the valuing of things in the public markets. And we shouldn't reward people for burning the commons of misleading people to you know to to benefit from that system and then using that for their own personal benefit maybe even for the benefit of others but at the cost of other people who would want to who could also do amazing things but you know would either not get that capital or would you know have their have their things be looked at more skeptically because because of of the misleading of it and look i think that actually both of those are 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 interestingly correct, right? Both of those are a trade off of of exactly what we were talking about before of the stock market of of how we think about it. Because you know, the more you think there's a delta, which I have no clue, right? But the more you think there's a, a intentional delta between the the things used to to get people to support the stock and the current state of the business, the more it is a burning of the commons, and you know. The, in general, there are there are definitely positive things to to be had from that. If the you know if if he builds something that is super successful, but in general, we also should should weigh the concerns of of anything that uh, you know we we should weigh the concerns of we don't net want to to promote people burning the commons. And so I think that you know it's a it's a tough one in that dimension. And the reality is that it is a super open question on i i think that i said like whether he can achieve it or not is entirely a function of what time frame he actually has to work on right and like it almost makes it reflexive a little bit it's 100 percent reflexive. if you think he's a good right? business person he will be a good business yeah person. it's 100 percent reflexive right because you know figuring out like the challenges that they have as a company they may not be figured out 
because you know figuring out how to do this how to actually build vehicles is a remarkably complex thing and it takes time and money and and so like the question is will he actually have the runway for that and what is the runway that is a reasonable runway that he should be supported in having that is is for sure in flux right and is is Elon or your Elon's industry sort of a special case or are things far more reflexive than we think the implications of that are perception is reality and PR is really fucking important in that world I mean Look, I think that it's not the only thing, but many more things are reflexive than, than, than people certainly do think. I think, you know, one of the prime examples we see in companies very often is that most companies don't think about PR and brand, or when they think about PR and brand, they think about it in terms of customers, when really what it is probably most important for is recruiting. And, and, that never shows up because, you know, it's, it's the thing that you don't measure, but permeates into every decision that people interviewing at companies go through of kind of, well, what companies do I think are, well, like, what companies do I know? What companies do I think are doing well? What, what is, what is my general feeling of these companies? And what is that implicit PE PR ratio that, uh, that people have of companies is actually incredibly important but not often thought about because we don't have great ways to to quantify it. And we often misread the places where it manifests as being more about something else like, oh, how we ran the recruiting process. So I think that there's lots of things like that where it does come into play. I think, you know, part of this is we have created all of these kind of, you could say on-chain, but really the thing is common knowledge systems of how we, that have huge benefits to the companies that take advantage of them and are willing to play by their rules and be constrained by their rules. And, you know, both the general branding and, and view of people of, of, of companies and people, as well as the financial markets kind of financial version of that are examples of how there's huge upsides and downsides to, to, being known in that to, to playing in that dimension, I think a lot of times people view the downsides of it and also the ways in which it feels kind of sketchy. But on the flip side, I think that, you know, the downsides come as a consequence of wanting to, to have the upsides of it, right? And similarly, the sketchiness of it comes from the fact that this system is not perfect by any means right. and but there's a real need for a system which is hey you know in the pr version most employees just don't know most companies so there's no reasonable expectation that they should have a accurate viewing of what are the companies they'd be interested in working at and so we need a system that figures out a way to say hey these are the companies you should look at and are probably interesting to you and we've converged on press as the social capital will press and word of mouth as the social capital way and venture in the stock markets as the financial capital way of doing that. Those both have are certainly not perfect systems, but are those systems better than the, you know, is, are those systems better than the systems that existed before? Probably just like it is probably better that we have LinkedIn, right? Where you can go actually see a bunch of these companies and be reached out to by a bunch of these companies than before when, you would struggle to figure out what exactly was the name of the company and right. who was working there and all of these things. Yeah. 
I wonder if in the future we'll have a more social LinkedIn. You know, right now there's a lot of information about, you know, stock market of what people think of you. <laughs> like, right now we don't rely on third party as much as, you know, we'll do reference checks, but it's, it's a lot redundant. Like, we'll only ask like five or 10 people where there, you know, we know hundreds or even thousands of people who have been inter- interactions with us and there's no way to sort of scalably get their assessment. And I wonder if. Yeah, like uh, I think the sign that that there certainly is 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 all of the social platforms, right? right? Because if you meet somebody who a lot of people I meet who I don't know them at all in person, but for years we've known yeah. each other or been in lots of conversations together on Twitter, right? And yeah. and so when you meet, it's not like meeting a stranger; you already know them, right? right? And and so, uh, and just like, you know, the softer form of this is, you know, dating apps have obviously show you who your mutual friends right. are, right? And, and there's all these ways in which you really, you really have a view of, do you know people in common? Or do you think about the same things? What right. do you actually like as a person? And, and I think that, you know, we're, we're already well into heading into, into that world, right? Where, there's just way more iterations and right. just passive kind of knowledge of and, and interactions with people that you already kind of have a bunch of built in social social bridges even before you go meet with someone in person, right? right? Totally. You uh, one thing we talked about in the past is this concept of reading people in addition to, to reading books. And I'm just curious how you think about learning broadly, information diet, re- reading people versus books, how you read books. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um I mean, so I, reading books is, is, is fantastic and, and supremely underrated. You know, I, I think that the reading people to, to that, you know, is like, I think that, you know, people who you resonate with kind of like, uh, someone has distilled a neural net where the node has distilled, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, all of the information they've processed, applied their filter to it, and then kind of transfer it to you. And, you know, you need to calibrate and back propagate and, and, and kind of understand exactly what their biases are and how much they care about the same things you care about and all of that. But you can kind of not only get all of that from them, you can then interact with it, right? And go down all sorts of directions and, and keep, pushing down it and then both of you can kind of even feedback loop on that and, and, and kind of talk through new things and, and, and push it forward. And so I think that there's a, a, a ton of benefit to that. And, you know, I, I roughly think that I have not experienced any upper cap on length of time you could spend discussing, talking with somebody who you resonate with highly for example, I, I remember, you know, one of the things that always confused me a little bit about venture, which I understand, but confused me a bit, was that all good meetings, you know, by definition will go over, right? Mm-hmm. Because you realize that there's just so much more to talk about. But if you schedule every meeting back to back to back, then every good meeting will have been way too short and every bad meeting will have been way too long. And and you won't even have gotten, you know, the first hour of talking with someone, the likelihood that you will actually have figured out the frequency to resonate at where the throughput is highest is probably pretty low that you have kind of 
peeled back all of the layers of, of the onion, right? And so there's just so much more depth that comes, I think, even as you talk to the same person over and over again, and then building increased kind of resonance and shared language that make it possible to both open up more and, and talk about things you wouldn't with other people, and then also to go so much deeper and, and go in interesting directions. And so I, I think that is is super underweighted and, and incredibly useful. You know, on the information diet side, I don't think I have a perfect system for this. I, I certainly think that everybody I know seems to be trying to refigure out what is the mixture of you know, reading books and their PKM and how to take notes and, and reading articles and whatever that, that works best. I think, you know, one of the things that I've found I really want more of and love is what are all of the documents that people find or people write that, you know, you would love reading if they just default shared them with you and how you get people to do that, and how do you do that with others. And so, you know, I've seen, uh, I think, independently, a bunch of friends of mine have experimented with that in ways that I found super interesting, where it's either things ranging from kind of them doing different experiments on how to read and summarize and analyze books, and then also share that with a group of people in some format that, you know, then lets you kind of build off of that and discuss it or under or unpack the thing or, or whatever. And similarly, how do you get people to share the kind of writing that they're doing, whether for work or, or for fun or, or whatever, and, and increase that throughput so that, you know, you can get all of these essays that are even more tailored to your interest. And so I think part of it is like, how do you, how do you increase both of those uh, has been, you know, if I think about where the, the top things I've read over the last year or so, you know, all of the top 10 probably fall into one of those categories. Is there a way you think about getting, becoming an expert in a field, say like crypto or, or you know, uh, transportation in a way that is different than normally people think about becoming an expert, which is, you know, read everything, talk to everybody? That's a good question. I don't I don't really know what the common way of becoming an expert is, so so I don't know how much mine differs from others. I think some of the things I think about in becoming an expert in something, uh, or at least in my case, becoming passive, uh, adequately yeah. adequate, mildly adequate in in things is uh, is a few things. I think the first one is is you know if you can find a way to have a stake in it, it not rationally, but it dramatically increases how much how fast your rate of learning on it will be. Crypto is a very easy example of this, or the stock market, where, you know, if someone wants to learn about it, the easiest way to do it is to have them just put in any amount of money into it, not because they're going to make a good decision, but because the amount that they actually care and spend learning about it, when they had nothing at stake there versus they put any amount, they will, is orders of magnitude off. You know, I think that in crypto, this is super true. But, but you know, even when I was young, I think at, at one point, my, my, my parents convinced me to do this with the stock market. And like the, I mean, I put my money in a stock and then the stock went down and I immediately panicked. But like the amount I actually cared and spent just understanding all this stuff and its practical usefulness to me was just so much higher. And then similarly, I think that, uh, you know, what you're doing with this podcast, right, or just talking to people is exactly the same thing non-financially, right, where 
a bit on time, which is a, maybe even more so, or and also I guess looking awkward in front of strangers, right. which is even more so maybe a a factor where it, it then just forces you right, and and it's very clear what is success and and what the feedback loop of it is. Various layers of skin in the game for sure, right? I think another one is is kind of figuring out how to get to the most basic adequate is the sequencing of loops to kind of get deeper and deeper in it. And so that's figuring out, you know, first of all, what is the kind of basic layer of things that is embarrassing to not know and, 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 and to be a base of conversation? What is the things that is cross applicable from areas that you understand that, that then, you know, need to be modded in some ways but as long as you understand the structure of the thing you're trying to study, you could mod it in those ways. Then, then using those to kind of hit the activation energy of getting deeper in the space of figuring out who are people who, you know, will talk to you and help you understand the, the state of things and what people are thinking about and how to think about them and, and, you know, expedite you getting to the current frontier of those industries. And, and then also, uh, you know, then figuring out from there, what are all of the things to go deeper in it? You know, I think that part of that also is most industries in general are probably have, have way too understand, too little understanding of what is the things from other areas that apply to their industries and, and how to think about how, you know, their structural dynamics are kind of similar with a few mods to pre-existing structural dynamics and in, in something else. And so I think that you know, once people start to intuit that, it becomes a lot easier to understand, hey, I know marketplaces, but not social. What are the kinds of similarities in understanding it? But then what are also the things that I need to go think through how it changes, right? And, right. and, and how, to, how to change that. If you're two years in with a person and maybe you realize that they're no longer resonating with you in the same way, you've already been compound. You have so much sort of at stake. Yeah. It sort of puts pressure on just making sure you're selecting the right people or how do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, you could view that in a, in a good way or bad way and, and it can be both. Uh, you know, I think that the classic example of this is dating, right? Oh. I think that, you know, one of the questions on, on, on relationships or marriage or, or whatever is, you know, where does your enjoyment, fulfillment, whatever come from in the relationship? And, you know, there's things that range from you share the same interests to things like there's some, some part of it that is just from the compounding of the relationship, right? And all of the, all of the shared language that you build with this person, right? Which is obviously a thing that, that makes it gives people pause in both directions when they think about both what does it mean, like, what does it mean after a breakup when you don't know, right, like, when nobody else you meet probably has that amount of shared compounding of shared language yet with you, and also how do you accurately weigh, you know, what that would look like with someone, right, and and so I think it, it definitely is the case that that happens in all human human relationships, whether relationships, whether dating or, you know, professional ones or friendships or whatever, you know, I think that it, the exit cost of it is still always relatively low in that you can, it means that you may find out that there are people who you 
have only who you've only just met who you feel like you probably would resonate with very strongly but you know compared to to others that you've known for years and years and years because they were you know family friends you know you just know those people better i actually in general don't worry about that except for the case where you think that time is that you have hit the limits where time is fundamentally a scarce resource i think that you know time is fundamentally a scarce resource for most people certainly myself i'd say that my time mismanagement is definitely more of the thing that makes it a scarce resource than actually any constraint on on time and so like i i think that the problem tends to less be hey you know there's people who you have compounded with for so many decades but actually don't have that much you have in common like what is the correct way to to you know make a decision on where to spend time as much as one of hey you know how do you actually make sure that you don't get lost in the day-to-day of all of the stuff you have going on and and forget about you know, all spending time with, with people you care about, right. Whether personally or professionally or, or whatever. And, you know, in, in general, I find that that probably tends to be more of the constraint than, than having to make a raw trade off and, you know, the different levels of how well, you know, people versus how much you feel like you resonate. I don't have an amazing segue for this. But we're going to close on it. <laughs> Your thoughts on Judaism and Christianity? You're trying to convert me to to, to one of them? Yes. You, yeah. You can guess which side I'm on. <laughs> Please. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, as I as I as I said, I think all human organizations are relatively topologically equivalent, and I think that is true of religions as well. And you know, if if we think that a lot of these companies or or protocols should be modeled as cities. You know, it's not obvious that religions isn't something they should be modeled off of as well. And it's kind of this artifact that everybody understands and we know and and have a lot of shared context around, but has kind of stopped having the primacy of role it used to have. And the question is like, are there attributes from it that actually are being adopted into all sorts of these other areas? Like unbundling. Yeah. uh, Or are there things to learn from them that also could be right and and so you know there's clearly a bunch of things to learn from them like you know uh, someone once told me that you know paul may have been the original growth hacker <laughs> but i think the, the fascinating thing about judaism and christianity is how opposite they are on a bunch of dimensions and you know christianity is is or specifically catholicism is so centralized in approach and Judaism is so decentralized in approach. And I think that there's tons of, of lessons to learn from, from both of those, right? And, you know, similarly, uh, or additionally, I think that both of them have this fascinating characteristic of how do you, how do you decide to pass down what you view as the cultural norms and how do you pass those down? And what is the kind of habits and rituals and things you create in order to do that? And they've gone about it in very different ways, right? And, and I think that's that's super, super fascinating to, to unpack. And, and, you know, there's kind of this almost stigma, it feels like, of, of people, you know, trying to, to 
understand those understand those better when it feels like those are one of the few things we have that are have thousands of years of literature that is is you know that we literally could go look at to try to understand all of these dynamics and you know versus most other most other things that have have really not done nearly the amount of job at at trying to figure out how to compound and and sustain for for nearly as long and so uh, I think that probably we, you know, a friend of mine, Dan Wang, who who spends a lot of time kind of studying the Chinese government, told me once that, you know, the Catholic Church is, is actually one of the main institutions that the Chinese government has spent a bunch of time and has a bunch of people studying to try to understand takeaways from. And that seems kind of apt to me because, you know, if you think about building institutions that have lasted as long as they have, have permeated, you know, all of the financial, social and personal norms and capital of, of, of people and, and also seem to kind of operate on a different dimension than, than the traditional corporate structure we've had. Religion has been probably by far the most successful one. Right? Yeah. To close, where can people learn more about you online and, and, and this course? Where, where can they sign up? And perhaps... If you've listened to this the whole way through, you, you resonate with this, uh, the listener. And so what's your sort of, uh, you know, some people have requests for products. I'd be curious if you have sort of a request for experimentation in terms of like, where do you want people who resonate with, with this, with this conversation or, or you generally to be exploring more or thinking more about or? Yeah. 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 No, thanks. Thanks for having me. My blogging is pretty infrequent. Hopefully we'll pick up, but you can find me on, on, on Twitter where I, I am probably on more than I should be. And then, you know, the Reforge class, if you go to Reforge's website, there's three classes happening right now, one on kind of growth, one on retention and engagement, and, and then the one that Casey and I have been working on, on, on uh, growth models. All, all of them are actually great. You know, definitely check check those out. And then in terms of the, the things that I, I wish people would work on, you know, I don't actually know off the top of my head which are the companies I think people should work on. I think the things that I wish people would work on more outside of companies is figuring out what are actually these these new kind of form factors and, and ways to participate in the commons that, that we should have. And so I think that, you know, I'd love to see people sharing more of the, the stuff that they work on and think about in public or, or, or with their friends. And, and I'd love to see the discussion of that increase a bunch. You know, I think that uh, one of the things that I worry about a lot currently is, is you know, I have a, I have a bunch of friends who, who currently kind of feel like they're disengaging from, from the public comments of Twitter or whatever channels. And they worry that it's becoming too, too toxic. I actually worry the opposite, which is that it's becoming that, that, you know, people will leave it. You know, my general view is that you could roughly think of Twitter and your, uh, or whatever public spheres as like your neighborhood. And a lot of people seem to be afraid that there's a lot of drive-by shootings. But, you know, in general, I'd say that like that is, is less of a thing to say. That's all you know, 
go away from versus how do you actually strengthen that, right? And, and, and figure out how to have more things happening and, and more discussion happening and, and more people kind of figuring out new ways to increase the amount that everybody is able to share and collectively push forward what, you know, how we think about industries or companies or, or how to read or, or whatever areas. And so how do you say to those people who are worried about the drive-by shootings, do you say, they, they won't happen or they might happen, but it's still better that you participate and maybe take one for the team or <laughs> for take, the collective. That's what I say to people who are from drive-by shootings too. <laughs> just, take, just take one for the team. A few things. I think that the the most important thing is that they, they should weigh the positives with the negatives, right? And the positives are very high in that, you know, for most of the people, I probably would not have known them if right. not for Twitter. And so similarly for a bunch of, of their friends, uh, I think that there's a, a bunch of positives that, you know, it's hard to, to maintain a thing that is as permissionless or open a top of funnel as Twitter. And so there's a lot of value to having that. And then I also think that, you know, understanding why the negatives are happening and why we should probably expect them to change over time is is also important. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons the negatives are happening. But two of the key ones are that, one, the negatives are happening because, you know, we have this thing that is, we actually don't have social norms or legal norms around yet, which I would roughly call kind of pseudo-celebrity, where, you know, it used to be that, celebrities had reduced kind of privacy laws because we were like, they're super important people. They're of public interest. They're benefiting from this public interest. And there's no way we could stop paparazzi from following them. So like probably we should we'll make the laws have this kind of odd loophole where they have diminished privacy expectations. And we were okay with this trade because we thought that they were benefiting from it. And so they kind of could opt out of it yeah. if they wanted to. But now we have this system where social capital is much more distributed, where, you know, your one tweet could randomly go viral, and then you're kind of obligated to, you know, put in your SoundCloud link <laughs> and, and pimp your SoundCloud account, but then be like totally off guard, right? And and sometimes for the positive, sometimes for the negative. And people are unused to this because there's this weird pseudo-celebrity, which we actually don't know what our legal norms around that are. Uh, you know, I think the two biggest questions right now in our laws around this are kind of this one, which is about what are the privacy expectations of people in this world where anyone can temporarily become a person of interest. And then similarly, you know, what is the view of whether we view distribution as speech or not? But I think that, you know, the, if you view that as the reason this is happening, for a lot of people who, who are feeling the negative effects of this, it's because their tweets are getting out into the wider air, out of context, and then this group of people who they don't interact with at all and may not agree with at all has found it and decided to come in, right, and, and attack them. And I think that, you know, we haven't figured out the social norms of that, and the attack profile vector is very high because people have realized that social is very value is is actually impactful and so it's valuable and so because it's valuable it is valuable to try to to try to uh, regulate and, and impose your your views and norms on on others sometimes that is correct sometimes that is incorrect but i think that you know that's a work in progress that we're all figuring out and it's not i think that 
harms of that, while true, are are uh, things that you know are not going to get better with everybody actually retreating from that. They probably will only get better with everybody actually engaging with that and leaning into it and figuring out what is the ways to actually maintain the benefits of the kind of productivity gains we've had of the internet being relatively open without without letting it close off too soon now that people have realized that uh, it is super open and valuable which makes it a you know good attack vector for a bunch of these things louis ck once talked about the optimal level of fame being like <laughs> only known for people who you resonate with yeah. And not known for people who you don't resonate with. Did he actually say resonate? That's no, he didn't amazing. say resonate. Oh, okay. I'd be mean, so, <laughs> so impressed. He did not say resonate. <laughs> and he probably went overboard. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly, I think that one of the ways I've thought about Abdullah's fame is there's certainly a an immediate step function drop in your happiness at the second you need to hire bodyguards. <laughs> so there's probably like a... Uh, a like 50% drop in your happiness the day you realize if you ever reach a point where you're like, I need to, cause I'm too famous, need to hire bodyguards. So yeah. there's, there's definitely a, a diminishing return on some part of it. Yeah. Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thank, yeah, thank, thank you, you for coming Thanks on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it.